Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Abraham Vergese is the author of The Covenant of Water. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the author of many other books, including the NBCC Award finalist, My Own Country, the New York Times notable book, The Tennis Partner, which we talked about, and the novel Cutting for Stone, which we also talked about, which spent 107 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold more than 1.5 million copies in the U.S. alone. It was translated into more than 20 languages and is being adapted for film by anonymous content. 
Vergeze was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2016, has received five honorary degrees, and is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He lives and practices medicine in Stanford, California, where he is the Linda R. Meyer and Joan F. Lane Provostial Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Enjoy. Welcome, Abraham. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Covenant of Water. I'm so excited to be with you. Thank you for asking me. I have to tell you, Cutting for Stone, This must you must get this all the time, so this is probably boring to hear, but it was one of my favorite books. I read it. I cherished it. I took notes in the back so I could like have it with me all the time. I just loved it, so thank you. Oh, that's anyway. meaningful to me. I don't, I don't get tired of hearing that. <laughs> and of course, your latest book is also amazing. And I have all these quotes that I have from it that I just like loved. But maybe you could start by telling listeners a little about why you decided to write this book and your family relation to it and, and inspiration and all of that. Yeah, I was looking for a setting for my new novel and uh, was sort of inspired by uh, something that had happened some years ago, my my mother, when she was in her 70s, was asked by my niece, who was then five and who grew up in America, uh, Amachi, what was it like when you were a little girl? And my mother was so taken with that question, having you know lived in India, Africa, and then in Florida at the time, that she began to write by hand this you know, sort of long account with illustrations of what her childhood was like. And it was it was funny, it was compelling. It was also very familiar, you know, <clears throat> old anecdotes of eccentric family members. And on in reading it, I just had the realization that this is where I should set the next novel. I hesitated a little bit because I wasn't born in Kerala. I was born in Africa, grew up there, but I did know Kerala well because we would go there every every holiday and later in medical school I would I was there a lot with my grandparents so uh, that was my only hesitation but then you know with, with the help of mom who passed away when she was 94 but she was <laughs> actively engaged with my writing of the book till the till the very end oh I'm sorry for your loss where did the idea of the sort of family curse come from you know I think um there's a lot at stake with families with arranged marriages being so common. I mean, this is a small insular community that that I talk about. It's a Christian community who, who date their Christianity back to 52 AD when St. Thomas the Apostle landed. And in that community, and really in all communities in India where arranged marriages are common, it doesn't take much to taint a bridegroom or bride, usually more the bride than the groom, to taint their prospects. And uh, so I think that was there in the back of my mind, you know, all these rumors people have about this family, that family. And uh, that's where it sort of began. Uh, I've been struggling with hearing loss. And so I think I was very attuned to a condition that, you know, affected hearing and balance. And so God knows, I mean, it's not like I know the whole story. I wish I did. It just sort of emerges organically and something seems promising and you push along until until you realize it's a big waste of time and then you, you backtrack <laughs> and you start again. As you know from writing your own novel. Oh, I mean, 
<laughs> we can't even compare our types of novels, but thank you for that. <laughs> in this particular arranged marriage in your book, it's between a girl of 12 and a 40-year-old, which I know in history books and whatever, you read that and you're like, oh, there used to be a big age gap. But the way you brought that to life and the thinking about just how young this 12-year-old girl is and having to go and leave her home and deal with a whole new family. And you just really brought that age gap to life and the fear and and all of it, even despite what ends up coming next. And I don't know, just, it, it was a great way to start really putting ourselves in her shoes. Yeah, I think it also goes against most of our, it goes against the grain in the sense that, you know, we have this visceral reaction when we hear about something like that. But, you know, honestly, that was my grandmother and great grandmother's story uh, in the sense that, you know, they were they were married to this 12 year old or 13 year old boy, but they really just became children in the same household. <laughs> One of my aunts was telling me when she was going over a photo album, she said, you know, this girl, she went to her mother in law when she was 13 or 12 and said to her mother in law who she loved you need to get rid of that boy. He's so irritating. And she was talking about her, her husband, the, the son of this lady. You know? <laughs> there was a certain innocence, which would obviously end at a certain point. And my great-grandmother actually married very young to a widower who already had, I think, three or four kids. And she went on to bear him six or seven children. And they had the happiest marriage. I never knew her, but According to my mother, it was just uh, and, and so I, I like that idea of working against the reader's presumption of, you know, how disastrous this is going to be. Wow. Well, one of the the themes in the book is loss, and I know you wrote it during pandemic times and working in the hospitals during that time. And oh my gosh, it's amazing that you did that and could even right after instead of just, I mean, just the whole thing is amazing, but you had a, a number of beautiful lines about loss, one of which was just keeping sort of their memory, keeping their memory alive. You had one quote and you said, I know she can see us. She says with conviction, she could tell him why, but he doesn't need explanations, just the truth. She watches over us and everything. She stays my hand when I want to add more salt. She reminds me when the rice boils over. It's just so nice. Right, the way that we keep the, the departed sort of in our day-to-day lives. Right? It doesn't have to be some big ghost appearance, right? It could be these little moments. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, for example, after my mother's death, you know, I, I was struck by the idea. I think I actually got it from reading it somewhere that, you know, even though my mother is gone, the web of her presence is all around us. Uh, even when she was here, it's not as though I was with her every moment, but I was you know, with these artifacts of her life. And so, you know, even by being around these artifacts, you still have that sense. Or when I was at the grave, I have a sense that, you know, mom's very much there. The web is there. You know, the central character may not physically be present, but the effect is very much around, you know. And I, I suppose I get, I might get criticism that there is a fair amount of death and loss in a in a novel like this that takes place over three generations, but I would say that that's sort of inevitable. And I I often feel that people, this is a very broad characterization, but I think people have a lot of denial about death and the fact that, you know, we are mortal beings, you know, life is a terminal condition, as John Irving says, in the world, according to Carp. And so I think perhaps I'm much more conscious and driven by that sense of urgency and so even though I write a lot about medicine, I think I think of medicine as 
you know, life plus plus, life on steroids, you know, life most acutely observed, but it's still life that most people are going to encounter at some point, you know. I actually just had John Irving on this podcast. <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> you also wrote, I went back and read part of The Tennis Partner. I'm a huge tennis fan and started <laughs> rereading that book. And you know, you refer to alcoholism in the same way, that it is a lifelong, not terminal, but it is a lifelong condition. It is something that has to be managed daily and never really recovered from in the same sort of way and that there should not be guilt and shame associated or not shame, perhaps guilt of actions, but no shame of the disease. Yeah, that book was a profoundly moving book for me. And as you lose a friend to his, his problem was actually cocaine addiction, you know, physician and addiction is quite common in physician circles for many different reasons. But, but yeah, I mean, loss is, I'm sorry, I didn't mean alcoholism. I meant addiction. I meant addiction. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, the differences are not really great. I think uh, addiction, once it takes hold, is a powerful disease. And the disease metaphor, I think, is quite applicable. Oh. But I'm glad you like the tennis partner. I would have guessed that, you know, given your uh, background, your husband's, that tennis would be a, <laughs> a... You know, some readers appreciated the tennis. Others were more caught up with the story. So I always love it when someone... Appreciated the tennis aspects of that. <laughs> well, all of it. I mean, I, I've lost a friend. I've lost several friends over time. And um, I had one really close friend in, in high school who had addiction problems. And, you know, it's it's sadly a, a very relatable situation that you were in. I'm so sorry for the loss. But, wow, what a gripping story that was, too. All of your writing. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I know you have an MFA from Iowa, right? In addition to being a revered doctor, I, I, I wonder how many people have those two degrees. You should do a little survey if you don't already know. I can't imagine there are more than a handful, but pairing the two is just so amazing. Tell me about what the combination, like kind of what you took out of the MFA program you still use or what you even thought of going through that or how you marry these two parts of the brain? You know, to be honest, I never set out to be a writer. I mean, to, to this day, I still think of myself as all physician. You know, I, I felt medicine was a wonderful calling and it's been a, a great adventure. So I never set out to write. I know this is somewhat disingenuous, but when, whenever people give me this physician and writer label, if I had to choose one, it would be all physician. And uh, what happened is I was living through this extraordinary story in a small town in Tennessee, well after I had specialized in infectious diseases, when HIV, the supposedly urban disease, I was seeing large numbers in this very small town. And it was the desire to tell that story, uh, that you know, fascinating paradigm, which no one had described, which was simply that Gay men had left their homes years before because they were gay, quietly, part of the great exodus. And then they were coming back decades later because they had HIV and their partners had died. And so even though I wrote a scientific paper describing this migration, it, it never captured the grief of the families, the tragic voyage, or, or my own grief at you know, taking care of these young men in those days when there wasn't much in the way of treatment and they were my age. And so I wanted to tell that story and I decided to apply to Iowa. Um, the only criteria then were two short stories and they took me and I went. 
<laughs> considered crazy by my colleagues because I gave up a tenured position to my two young kids. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of ironic because I came to medicine because of two books. One was uh, The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. Uh, and then the other one was Of Human Bondage by Somerset Mom. So it's ironic that books should bring me to medicine and then at some point I should be writing books. But I think they come out of the same spirit and the same lens with which I go to work every day. You know, I don't think it's markedly different, like two parts of the brain. Is the spirit helping people? Is that the main through line? I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, helping people, but more than that, it's like sort of a curiosity and an empathy for your fellow human beings. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm an internist, so I'm really trained to observe. And, you know, sometimes in an airport, when I can see these people walking, I can pick out every pathological gate known to man in that one mile walk as they come to your gate. And, you know, so you're, you're taught to observe and you're taught to take these disparate facts, uh, you know, and put them together, you know, and come up with a uh, unifying story or diagnosis. So I think that that lens of, you know, empathy, interest, keen observation lends itself to both, to both crops. But I do find that I, I, to my surprise, work out things that have happened at work that I, I don't think I would have worked out except by writing about them, you know, the emotions, I mean. So I, I often say, and I, I don't know that this is original, but I, I write in order to understand what I'm thinking. There's just mm-hmm. some other level of understanding, as you know, that comes when you actually sit and write as opposed to when I you know, take a walk around the neighborhood and think about the book they there, it's just fascinating to me. So I feel like the writing informs the medicine and vice versa. And I can't separate the two very clearly. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, it's working for you. You can keep it up. <laughs> it seems to, you know, having that deep knowledge obviously informs the book and particularly this one. You know, I think another theme of the book is love, all these different forms of love, right? Parent, child, and romantic love and all that. If I could read one more quote, you write, forgive me, he says, it hurts me to think that we may not have a life together, but it doesn't stop me loving you. He tastes tears on her lips, tears that could be his too. She raises her head to look at what he has done, the canvas of herself. She shakes her head in amazement. She whispers, you've helped me find myself. Do you know? Well, thank you. Thank you for reading that passage. I love that. You know, I think one of the things that really came home to me again uh, in the COVID epidemic, as it had in the HIV epidemic, is, you know, at the end of our lives or when our lives are prematurely threatened, what is it that we treasure? I mean, it's really not so much our accomplishments and our possessions. It's, it's the meaningful relationships we had in our lifetime. And, you know, and so love sort of bubbles to the surface or the absence of it when we're stressed like that. So, and I, and I think that the thing that was very striking to me, and here I was writing about a time period in the 1900s to 1970, and in the hospital observing, you know, this latter-day pandemic, but the emotions, the heartache, the uh, the way people find meaning in their loss, nothing had really changed. In fact, There was something about the lens of simplicity, looking back at a much simpler time, that allowed you to see much more clearly how 
how one dealt with it. And, you know, these are age old problems and where, you know, none of us escapes them. So, you know, it was actually very interesting juxtaposition of, you know, not that I'd wish it on, on again, but COVID on the one hand and writing about, you know, leprosy and diphtheria and so on in the 1900s. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I feel like it's also fed into when you said that someone, one of your characters, I don't want to give everything away, but it says this character has been dead for years and her body has now followed. Her soul has been dead for years and her body has now followed. So there's something about, you know, going through loss and trying to get through life and what does it mean to live without love and all of these big questions. Big questions. I also think that, uh, you know, to be much more aware of death is actually a way to live more fully. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't embrace these losses as a because I'm sort of a pessimist, but it's more, you know, it just gives you a sense of being enormously grateful for each day. Every day above ground is a fabulous victory. And, you know, I think that, that it doesn't sort of make me a morbid person. Far from it. I think it makes me much more, um, you know, engaged with every moment that that I'm here. I, I feel the same way. I feel like every day I'm just fighting against time. I'm like, what can can I get stuff done today? Am I okay? I'm here. I'm okay. I can walk. I'm good. I mean, not that, or it doesn't matter if I. I mean, I shouldn't have said I can walk. Even if I couldn't walk, it doesn't matter. Like I'm healthy and my time is running out, and I better make today worth it. So that's sort of how I feel like loss inspires me personally. But anyway, no, I love it. I love that you, the way you just phrased that. I also think that novels, you know, which is what brings us together are the only way I know to escape the the sort of relentless progression of time. I mean, what other magic do we have in this world where you pick something up and, you know, you go through three generations, many lifetimes, and you, you put it down and it's just Tuesday. You know, that, that <laughs> is what keeps you reading and keeps me reading. It's just that wonderful way we're escaping, but we're not just escaping. We're trying to sort of pick up, fundamental truths and insights about our own lives, mm-hmm. even though it's in a 
fictional world. I think um, Dorothy Allison and Camus said much the same thing. Fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. And it frustrates me that more of my colleagues, for example, don't read fiction. They tend to lean towards nonfiction. You know, I'm a serious kind of guy. I read nonfiction. <laughs> I like to tell them, you know, a novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is what ended slavery in this country, in a sense. It really made the idea of slavery, you know, uh, distasteful. Uh, it swept the country. And a novel called The Citadel in, in England, which I referred to, uh, was the genesis of the National Health Service. So novels have the power to do more than we think. You know, they're not, they're not frivolous. They're terribly important. I agree. Now, also just to get out of your own experience, right? You don't have to travel. You can be in your kitchen and yet a place you'll never go in real life, understanding a culture you'll never be a part of. And it allows for such greater empathy. I think it's so important. And it's it's different than nonfiction, right? And yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think it would be sad to have a life without reading fiction. <laughs> I must say, from a writer's point of view, having written both nonfiction and fiction, as, as you have, you know, on the one hand, fiction is liberating because you can you can make anything up. You can get into anybody's head. You can, characters can write from after they're dead and so on. Uh, but you have to work so much harder to grab the reader's attention and, mm. you know, and keep them on the page. Whereas I think what you have going for you when you write nonfiction is the reader knows this really happened. And I think we have this inherent curiosity about something that really happened. Mm. And we have to work harder to suspend disbelief for something that's, quotes, made up, even if it's profoundly true in, a, in another way. So I love that challenge. I actually think I prefer writing fiction. I think uh, mining my own life for material after a while was hard. You know, I, I wound up revealing much more than I thought I would. Uh, but for the right reasons, the editor kept saying, you know, you can't have the camera so intensely on these characters, real mm -hmm. people. And then, you know, you've become a character and you, you can't just sort of put your hand on the lens when it turns toward you. So I accepted that, but I found it you know, difficult. And, mm. But but I'm comfortable with if the reader's done me the honor of getting the book, preferably buying it, not borrowing it. They've earned the right to learn these things about me. So it, it felt good in that sense. But it, it was hard for me. I understand that. <laughs> Given people's initial reluctance, perhaps, to getting into things that are not true, here you are coming out with very long book. <laughs> did you think about the length? Or, I mean, what, did, was that even a consideration? Did you consider chopping any sections or how do you feel about it? How do you feel about people making time for longer books or was it not an issue? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't an issue much for me, but I was very aware that certain readers would be, would, would balk a bit at the size of the book, you know, but I, uh, and to be honest, it was, a much longer book. We've made a lot of cuts, and I, I wished it was. I keep having this ambition to write a shorter book. <laughs> My books somehow tend to, you know, to tell the whole story. It has to be X number of pages. Uh, I found during COVID that I personally had an appetite for longer books. You know, mm -hmm. I almost got frustrated if something felt like a little amuse bush instead of the, you know, mm -hmm. the hearty meal that I was looking for even if it was very good. So 
I guess I'm reflecting my bias. I mean, I like the idea of a, a long novel, uh, but, you know, I understand completely that it's a little more challenging to get the reader into it. Hopefully, once they're in it, if you've done your job, hopefully they keep going. Yes. Well, there was no challenge at all getting into your book. You, It was captivating from the start. What... I had the reader tell me, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Tell me, uh, which I thought was a great comment that, they were they were they got they were so engrossed in the book that they looked to see how many pages they had left, and were disappointed that there were only a hundred something pages left. You know, they, they wanted it to go on, and that's exactly as a writer, that's exactly what you want. That they they want this to go on, you know. And well, one of my favorite things when I'm reading is when I have to like cover my mouth or put my hand on my heart or like my body gets engaged, which it doesn't always, right? But there was one scene, I don't want to give things away, but really sad scene with involving loss. And I was reading it and I was just, my hand was over my mouth and then on my heart. And that's how I know I'm really into it. <laughs> well, you're not alone. You know, when I was revising some of those scenes of, you know, tremendous loss and tragedy, I mean, I would weep every time. I, mean, I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I knew what was going to happen, but especially when I was reading it aloud and, you know, sort of living it, it would just, because these characters had become evidently quite real to me. You know, they were concrete people that I knew better than I knew. I know some real people around me, you know. Wow. <laughs> so funny, isn't it? It is. Did you read the audiobook yourself? I can't imagine. Did you? you no, know, I did. Uh, oh my gosh! I, I was moved to do that because I enjoyed the the reading of Cutting for Stone that somebody else had done. But uh, you know, there were minor quibbles I had with the pronunciation of this and that. You know, to give you an example, the word Madras, which is a city now called Chennai, but. A North Indian can say Madras in a somewhat contemptuous fashion without knowing it. They can say Madras, you know. It would, it would, I don't know the analogy I could use. And to a South Indian, it would sound offensive. So there were like all these nuances that I was, I was picky about. Nobody else would ever have noticed. And this book, as you know, is full of a lot of different foreign sounding phrases and language even. And so I thought, well, let me give this a try. And I auditioned for the role, actually. <laughs> And I told them, I don't want to do it unless you think I can do it better than anyone, not just the pronunciations, but, you know, and I had to learn a lot. I had to learn how to perform the book. And, and you know, the, the fascinating thing to me, Zubi, is that I thought I knew this book, and I, 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 but as I read it, I could see connections that I had made that I had never consciously tried to make. You know, the subconscious mind is this amazing thing. It, it, it was doing things that I hadn't quite realized. So... It was such an experience to spend two weeks reading my own book <laughs> oh my and God. seeing things that I should have seen before. Oh, that's wild. Are you working on a new book? Not yet. I'm tossing around a few ideas for one. Uh, I think the biggest question is geography. You know, where does one set this? And I've gotten some mileage from setting two books now. I mean, that's all I have to my credit is two novels in somewhat exotic uh, places, for most readers. But, you know, I've lived a long time in America and I've been here in Silicon Valley for 15 years, Texas for 17 years. So I'm really looking to set a story in America, but I, I'm not sure 
what time period that will be. You know, mm. I find some time periods particularly fascinating. Our present time period, so-so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just, you know, too reluctant to just dive into the present craziness of our of our life. But uh, there's something neat about going back to some sepia-tinged uh, decades, you know. <laughs> And you mentioned quickly your hearing loss and that it's genetic and, and, you know, family. What are you, how are you handling that? Well, I think I have, you know, uh, the best hearing aids one can get. And and yet when you're in a crowded room or a restaurant, you know, the, nothing beats the human ear for you know being able to discern this sound in front of you from all the others. And so I'm just left marveling at the, you know, the complexity of the human ear. So I'm doing well. Uh, but just about this, this is the first year or the year before where I realized that, you know, I, I can, instead of being stressed by being in situations where I can't hear, I'm just coming out with it. Like, you know, uh, I just want to tell you, I'm really struggling to hear in this setting, just so you know, and announcing that sort of says, you know, lets me off the hook, so to speak. So, uh, and, and frankly, I don't know if it's my imagination, but restaurants are getting noisier and noisier the idea of a quiet dinner with your partner where do you go you know other than your own dining room so i did find a restaurant recently we were out with friends in la and we walked in and it was so quiet and i was like this is so nice restaurants are usually so loud and we were all looking around we were the only people under i don't know maybe 80 or something but anyway it was perfect i loved it and uh you know even if even if you don't struggle with you know, reduced hearing or whatever, being able to focus when you're distracted by all the sounds, right? That's exactly. why we do these podcasts in a quiet room, <laughs> no distractions. Yeah, it's made me very conscious of, uh, uh, you know, of, of how precious that these these senses are, vision, hearing. and But, uh, you know, you wonder about the old days where in the 1900s, and there was a lot of deafness and people just, my grandfather was, I recall having to really, almost shout for him to understand what I was saying. And none of this was available. It's just getting better and better. So yeah. I'm very hopeful. Excellent. Abraham, thank you. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you for researching me you. and knowing who, like anything about me. That was so flattering. And, uh, you know, thank you for all the hours I've spent with your stories. It's really a, a blessing. I don't even know how else to say it. So thanks. It's an honor to be. And I'm hoping to visit your bookstore in Santa Monica. Oh, please do. Uh, yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you for all you do for books and getting people to read. I much really admire that. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Music. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.